Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith podcast and another Christmas episode. Uh, This is going to be the final episode of 2020, which means we've nearly made it through this year. And uh, as I do at the end of each year around the holidays, I plan to take some time off. Uh, I go radio silent, which means I take a break from the podcast and it's uh, it's always a nice time to go off the grid, to go away from social media and so many other things that distract us. And I know, uh, at least for me, they're, they're distracting. And it's a time that I look forward to each year. And this year especially, I am really looking forward to the time away. But we still have today, episode 71, and we're going to explore an overlooked Christmas prayer. Now, this is a prayer that is uh, just two sentences long. It's spoken by someone who's not seen as central to the Christmas story. Um, But if you read Luke 1 and 2, his Christmas narrative, like she's right there. She's right in the middle of things. She's the one that Mary goes to when Mary finds out that she's pregnant uh, with Jesus, and she supports Mary. She almost acts as Mary's confidant, Uh, I'm talking about Elizabeth, and this is the mother of John the Baptist, the wife of Zechariah. Now, I talk about this Christmas prayer that's often overlooked because historically or traditionally, there have been three prayers, or they call so-called canticles or songs, and these three prayers surround the Christmas story. Uh, They are the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and the Nunc Dimittis. They're all titles from the Latin for the first words of the prayers. So the Magnificat comes from, my soul magnifies. This is the prayer of Mary after she is told that she will give birth to Jesus. The Benedictus is the song of Zechariah uh, after the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And the Nunc Dimittis is from Simeon. Uh, And according to Luke's gospel, Simeon was a devout man who had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah before he died. And when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple for the uh, rites of the firstborn, Simeon's there. He takes Jesus into his arms and he says, now dismiss your servant, nunc dimittis. And so you have these three traditional prayers that all come from Luke chapter one or Luke chapter two, but there's another prayer that's tucked into Luke's gospel that's also uh, in there with the Christmas story. And it's one that historically, to my knowledge, doesn't really get much attention. It's not even actually traditionally like a canticle or, or a prayer at all. And it doesn't have a Latin name. But if you compare the way that it's worded, it's very similar to the other prayers uh, that are traditionally around Christmas. It's just much shorter. The prayer that I'm talking about is the prayer of Elizabeth found in Luke chapter 1, She prays this after she conceives and is pregnant with her son, who we know to be John the Baptist. And she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. And so today on this episode, I want it to be more a time of uh, where we can reflect together uh, on what these words might say to us. And so I want to offer just a few thoughts on these, these words and maybe some questions uh, around these words. But to do all of that, we need to lay some of the groundwork first. And we'll do that by way of background, given what we know about Elizabeth and Luke. It'll help us understand more about her, and it will help us understand the religious world in which her and her husband lived. Then we'll come back to these words and uh, consider a few questions together. So first the beginning. 
like the actual beginning, like uh, Genesis chapter one. Uh, what we read at the end of Genesis chapter one, after the creation poem, is the first command that God gives to humanity is to be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And there was a tradition among some of the Jewish sages that understood there was something significant about this command. And it wasn't just because of its place here that it's where we realize this is the first command given to humanity in the sacred text. They said there was something significant about this because this command has to do with life and life comes from God. And here God says to the humans, I give you the power to create life. I give you the power to bring forth human life. And there's something here, not just about responsibility or having to obey this command. There's something here that was observed by the ancients about the power that is given humanity to bring forth life, to create life. That this command brings with it something sacred because life in the Jewish tradition is and was the highest and most sacred thing on this earth. So this then, for many, is considered a sacred duty. This is not just any old command. It's a sacred duty because humans have the power to bring forth life. Humans are given the command and the ability to bring about the most sacred thing on this earth. The second piece then, for a little bit more background and to understand Elizabeth's story, uh, I want to fast forward from this first command to when the people of Israel are in Egypt. Now, if you know the story, at the end of the book of Genesis, we learn that Jacob and his sons go to Egypt and settle down there. And in time, their population grows, and the writer of Exodus tells us that the king of Egypt, whose name is Pharaoh, begins to get nervous about the population boom of the Hebrew people, the descendants of Jacob and his sons. And they decide as a way of controlling them to force them into slavery. And we know that the slavery of the Hebrew people lasts for 430 years until finally the people are liberated and they leave Egypt under the leadership of a man named Moses And when they leave Egypt, they organize themselves into a nation. And in their ancient context, part of organizing themselves into a nation included uh, the, the addition or the appointment of priests. And the writer of Exodus tells us that the first priest chosen by God uh, was Moses's brother, older brother named Aaron or Aaron, (laughs) depending on how you want to pronounce it. The, The first priests were Aaron and Aaron's sons. And Aaron was not only just any old priest, Aaron would be the first high priest, which, according to the sacred text, is a place of dignity and honor. And we learn later that the descendants of Aaron would be forever uh, the priests for the people of Israel, which means if you're a descendant of Aaron, you're a priest. Now, this was no small thing. To be a priest was to be in a position of honor in a place of respect. You were charged with being the intermediary between God and God's people and between the people and God, which meant you represented God to the people. And then you represented the people before God. This was a massive, massive role. And it was a role that was given to Aaron and all of his descendants. They were the priests in Israel. 
Now, the Hebrew word for priest is Cohen, spelled C-O-H-E-N. So if you know someone or you've met someone with the last name Cohen, they actually may be a descendant of Aaron. And we hear this, uh, and when we hear this last name Cohen also can be spelled uh, out of the Hebrew K-O-H-E-N. Um, when we hear this last name, even today, there's still honor in being a priest or a descendant of Aaron. There's a man named Dr. Carl Skorecki, and he has done DNA research in order to identify those who are descendants of Aaron. As the story goes, as he tells it, um, he began wondering why if all Cohens, or the plural would be Kohenim, um, but if they were all descended from the same person, why is it that they were found scattered all over the world, and why would they look different? And so, he began to, to think of like how everyone from this line have a common ancestor according to tradition. And so in his medical world, he began to wonder, well, if the line or if these people are all descended from the same person, could the line have been maintained since the people were in the Sinai Peninsula when Aaron and his sons were called to be priests? And he believed that if all Cohens or all Kohanim are descendants of one man, that it was possible that they should have a common set of genetic markers. And so he and some of his peers, they began doing research and they found that 90% of Cohens share the same genetic markers. And I don't know anything about genetic markers or <laughs> genetic studies, but 90%, according to every expert, uh, 90% of people sharing the same genetic markers is unbelievably high. Now, you may be wondering to yourself at this point, why are you talking about this? And more, <laughs> more than that, why would someone go through all that trouble and spend all that time and money and effort doing the research on the genetic makeup? And the answer is because to be the descendant of Aaron is to be of a great lineage. It's one of dignity and one of honor. I mean, we understand this at, a, I would say, a lesser degree. I mean, think about, I don't know if you've ever met someone who talks about who they've descended from or who one of their ancestors is, even if it's like a distant past or even if it's, you know, somebody's uncle who's connected to somebody else. My neighbor, um, I'm actually looking at his house as I record this podcast. He's a descendant of Aaron Burr, <laughs> which if you're a fan of Hamilton, you're like, I, I already don't really like him. Um, but he's a direct line back to several generations back to Aaron Burr. It, but why does that matter? Like people find some like, oh, that's pretty cool. Wow. I didn't, I, you know, how, how are you connected? Why is it that we talk about that? Why is it that there's some sort of connection? Um, and, and why is there something there about being connected to people of fame and influence? I have a friend who's a, um, connected to or part of the family of Ernest Hemingway. And he and I have talked about this, and I was excited to tell him that my paternal grandfather and Ernest Hemingway were good friends and used to go hunting and fishing together. But why is it that we talk about this? And it's almost like there's something in us that seems to like knowing where it is we come from, especially when that connection goes back to people who had fame or honor or dignity. And for, for Kohanim, for Cohen's, for the priestly line of Aaron, it was and it is the same thing, but even more so. Now, 
You may be wondering at this point, okay, wait, why are we talking about priests? Well, we're talking about priests for the same reason we talked about the first and sacred command given to human beings about being fruitful and increasing in number and filling the earth. Because we need to lay some groundwork to understand the background of Elizabeth. So now that we've covered the sacred command and talked about the priests, now that we've done that, let's talk about what we know about Elizabeth. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, the first thing we learn about Elizabeth is that she was a descendant of Aaron. She's a daughter of Aaron, which means she would have been known as uh, a bat Cohen, which simply means the daughter of the priest. Bat, the word for daughter, Cohen, the name for priest. Now, to be a, a priestly daughter or to be a bat Cohen, uh, it wasn't just a title. It meant that just like your ancestor Aaron, you also held dignity and honor. Uh, and many rabbis suggested that to be a bat Cohen carried with it its own sanctity and honor. One reason they say this is because when the temple stood in Jerusalem and worshipers would bring their offerings and sacrifice them on the altar, the meat or the food that was left over uh, after the sacrifice was set aside for the priests. And of course, there was the question of like, well, can anyone else eat from the leftovers? And in this discussion, it was agreed that Bat Cohen's uh, were those who could eat of the food and the meat that came from the sacrifices. And it wasn't because they were just the daughters of a priest. It was that they could eat of it because there was a recognition that they too occupied a sacred place in the life of the people of Israel. It was even suggested that the Bat Cohens were themselves female priests in the same way their brothers would have been priests, which means they should have all the rights and all the privileges as their brothers and fathers. Now, the only way that they could ever lose these rights or lose these privileges was if they married someone who was not a priest. And this is why Luke includes another detail about Elizabeth. It's actually uh, a detail about her husband, Zechariah. Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest, which means Elizabeth uh, is a woman who bears the title Bat Cohen, and because she married a priest, she retains all the rights and privileges. She's a woman who, by the title, by her family, bears a certain sanctity and authority and dignity and honor. For some, she's a priest herself. Now, in her community or in the Jewish mindset, this title, and because of her marriage, this lends dignity and honor. And it was not just in the title. Luke tells us that Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless, but then he gives this interesting little like phrase after that, in the sight of God. Now, you, 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 we can get up, caught up in the religious nature of these words, but keep in mind, this spoke about their way of life. Like these are the people that you would look at, this is the idea, and think like, I want to be more like them. My wife and I have some friends who, um, they're these kind of people. We look at them and think like, I want to be more like them. Now, they're honestly old enough to be our parents. And I, th I think this is why uh, someone once asked me, why do you spend so much time with them? Like, why would you spend so much time with people who are older and wiser and have more life experience than you? And um, my response just reflects the, to that question, reflected the way my wife and I feel. I said something like, well, we spend time with them because as we grow, we'd like to be more like them. 
And honestly, every time we spend time with them, every time we're together, uh, my wife and I leave feeling inspired and challenged and more whole. And, and maybe you know people like this. Like these aren't people who, when you get together, offer a lecture. They don't talk about themselves. They don't really, really even talk about their lives at all. They just, it's like they live their lives in front of you in such a way that when you take a moment to pay attention to them, you witness people who are righteous and blameless. Like people who have a life worth imitating. People who, just by the way they live and move about in this world, there's this authority and power, but, but like this humility uh, within them. This is the way we're invited to think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. That yeah, 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 they have the title. Yes, yeah, they have the family connections. And this gives them influence. However, beyond all of that, these are people who live a life worth imitating. Their righteousness and their blamelessness is there. But, Luke says, but this is just in the sight of God. Which raises the question, well, what about the sight of their fellow people? Are they blameless in righteousness in the sight of their fellow people? This is a very interesting phrase that Luke puts here. I mean, if they have a life worth imitating, why didn't Luke comment about their reputation among their friends and their relatives in the village where they lived? And this is where I think things start to get interesting. Keep in mind the first command given to humanity, which we talked about, the sacred command to bring forth life. So Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless and righteous in the eyes of God. And then he adds this detail. But Elizabeth was unable to conceive in both her and Zechariah were well advanced in years. Elizabeth was unable to conceive and her and Zechariah are old. Now, I, I want to hit pause here for a moment because I want to approach um, I want to approach this with sensitivity, as I know that infertility is something that affects many, many people in our day. And I've, I've sat with couples who have been forced to walk through the pain of this. I've heard the questions, um, witnessed their confusion, the frustration, the immense sadness. I'm not going to pretend to know uh, what, what that feels like but I have sat with it. And so while I'm a bit removed from it, I've seen the pain. And so as I speak of Elizabeth, keep in mind, uh, we're, we're talking about what life was like in her day. And I feel like this is important because today we know that often um, it's not always the woman who's unable to conceive. It, it can actually be health issues with the man. Not that this makes it any easier, not even close, but, but I point this out because the assumption in first century culture was that the health issues was with the woman, which is, of course, an unfair assumption rooted in a chauvinistic culture, and nearly all cultures in this time uh, were chauvinistic, but this is the assumption nonetheless. So when the writer says, when Luke says she's unable to conceive, the assumption is this is on Elizabeth, and the context in the context of Jewish culture— um, one who gave itself to the sacred text, they understood the command to be fruitful and grow in number to be a sacred duty. It's part of what it meant to be human. This was like a divine command. This came from God, uh, from the mouth of God. So if you were a couple and you were unable to conceive, and if you were a wife in this arrangement, 
the questions were not asked of God. The questions fell to you. Like the burden was on you. Uh, Even the way it's spoken of, not only here, but in many ancient writings, even those beyond the sacred text, it shows little or no compassion for women. In one portion of the Jewish law, it emphasizes the importance of childbearing with uh, reference to Genesis 1. And it emphasized it to such an extent that it allowed for divorce if the couple was unable to conceive. And keep in mind, divorce was solely the right reserved for men, not women. Again, assuming, as they did, that it was the fault of the woman. If you were a woman who had been divorced in that culture, you were left with little to nothing with regard to protection or rights. Um, and, And to be remarried often didn't happen. Which means in addition to the pain of not having children, you're being told you cannot obey this command. You're being told your husband can legally divorce you. And the way all of this is spoken of is it's just unkind. I mean, there are words and phrases used about uh, women unable to conceive that are just devoid of compassion and any, any kind of understanding. This was an awful, awful thing and was often spoken of and treated in just despicable fashion. And and I read these words that Elizabeth was unable to conceive and her and her husband were well advanced in years. And I I wonder what was said about Elizabeth, Not, not in the Bible, but like around town, in her village. What was, what, what were people saying? Was there ever any gossip? I mean, sure, she's a bad Cohen, but yeah, she had a life worth imitating, at least in the eyes of God. But did anyone ever say, hey, uh, why do you think Zachariah and Elizabeth don't have any kids? I mean, after all, it's a sacred command, and for some reason, they've chosen not to. Or maybe there's something we don't know. And I say this because one thing I know is that humanity has not changed that much over the centuries. We like the latest information on on what's happening with people. As the ancient Jewish proverb goes, gossip is like choice morsels. They go down into the inmost parts. The writer of that proverb is saying, as humans, we nourish ourselves off the latest rumors. We nourish ourselves off of gossip, which... One of my favorite definitions of gossip is truth inappropriately told. Like we nourish ourselves off this. And even if it's true or not, that begins to matter less and less because if we don't have information, we can supply the imagination. And in this context, it stands to reason based on other religious writings that there were many or maybe just some people uh, who believed in situations like this that bad things like being unable to conceive happen to people as a result of their displeasing God. Now we can roll our eyes and be like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. But we, we still do this at some level. Like we assume that if something unfortunate comes our way, that it maybe is a result of something we've done wrong or God is punishing us. In one observation, by the way, uh, about that kind of thinking is anytime we believe this is the case, let's just be clear. We're talking at that point about karma, not about grace. And as much as that is true, uh, 
we, we still do this often. And it was the same in Elizabeth's day. How many people wondered just, you know, what is it that she might be hiding? You see, there was a belief uh, in their religious context that said, God will never give you a command without also giving you the power to fulfill and obey the command. Which means if you could not fulfill a command, then the question is, what's going on? And so how many people wondered in their minds, or maybe even out loud, do you think uh, Elizabeth has a dirty little secret? Why has Zachariah chosen to stay with her? Is there something he knows that we don't? Or maybe, maybe it's not Elizabeth, maybe it's Zachariah. Maybe she knows something about him. I wonder if, and, and of course, on and on it goes. And of course, you have Elizabeth, you have Zechariah. Like, I wonder what's, what's going on in their heads. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, been the subject of speculation or gossip or the target of rumors. I can tell you firsthand, it hurts and it is painful. And there's this sense of wanting to defend yourself, but it feels pointless. And it is pointless because the news spreads faster than you can chase it down, which means you can't keep up. So you just watch these things go and there's nothing you can do. Years ago, before my family and I moved to Denver, there were rumors swirling um, about me between a couple of different churches uh, after I had planted a church. And these the churches that helped us launch, uh, there was a, obviously people were excited about it. But apparently... Um, it, it just, things got messy in the church and it ended up with my getting fired. And I got fired because two people began planting the seeds of rumors about me. And they, in their spreading of rumors and untruth, um, the worst part of the whole thing was they were, what they said was vague enough that it invited speculation from other people. They didn't give information. And what was planted in this place was imagination and speculation and speculate they did. Every once in a while, I would run into someone who would tell me the latest thing they heard about me. Uh, someone told, <laughs> someone said to me one time, this is a hundred percent true. They said, well, yeah, uh, I heard someone, someone was telling me that there's a rumor out there that you were doing cocaine <laughs> and that's why you got fired. I mean, really, this is this is what was making the rounds. I'm like, listen, I know I'm high energy, not, not doing cocaine. And then there's the side of you, like where you look at a person that tells you that and you're like, why are you, why are you telling me this? <laughs> what do you want me to say? Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you're keeping me up to date on all of the stuff that's being said about me. That's untrue. And, um, I, I laugh now, but so many times I would find myself deeply, deeply angry at the unfairness of it all. And uh, I would wonder how could people who knew me for so many years choose to believe something that is not and would never be true about me. And the, But the rumors just kept going. And for me, it was this head game, and it was terrible. And I wonder, like, did Zachariah and Elizabeth ever experience this sort of thing? Did they ever give energy to chasing down the rumors? Did they, did they have people close to them who said, oh, by the way, you should know what so-and-so is saying about you? Um, I wonder, were there moments where they ever wanted to be someone else? 
like when they would walk around their village in the midst of daily life, did they ever see parents with their kids and think, I just would love to be them. I would love to have their life. It's this way of looking at others and imagining their perfect life as a way of escaping. Like, did they talk about this together when it was just the two of them? And I say that because I remember the many conversations I had with my wife. And we were uh, in the middle of these rumors swirling about us. We were somewhere between bewilderment and, and pain and rage uh, as we learned about the latest thing that was said about us. And it was so disorienting. And I wonder, is that how it was for them? Like, what were their conversations like? I mean, for Zechariah, you know, he would go up with his priestly division to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Did any of his fellow priests ask him about how things were going? Like in his first year of service in the, you know, the course of conversation, someone asked like, hey, did, do you have any kids? No. Did those questions keep coming? Did, did anyone ever try to pry into what was happening with him and Elizabeth? Now, keep in mind, they were old. So this is something that they lived with for many, many years. And I wonder, was there ever a sense when they wondered if maybe God was just angry with them? And then what about their longing? Like in the midst of all this, there's their desire, there's their hope that they lived with day after day. And maybe now at this point, because they're old, they've just kind of given up on it. But none of us know what was swirling in their minds and hearts. But what we do know is they were human just like us, living among humans just like us. They were just like you. They were just like me. And I don't know where each of you who are listening are, but it strikes me that most everyone we meet is dealing with something, and we have no idea about that when we observe them from the outside. But what Luke does, what Luke offers, are these details about Zachariah and Elizabeth, that they have dignity and honor when it comes to their ancestry, and yet they're dealing with something that for them was a daily reality. This is how Luke introduces us to them, but it's not where the story finishes. Luke tells us that an angel visits Zechariah while he is serving in the temple of Jerusalem and tells him that he and Elizabeth will conceive in their old age. And Zechariah basically laughs in the angel's face and is like, hey, buddy, um, like the wings. However, um, since you're a disembodied <laughs> spirit, let me tell you about human biology and how this whole thing works. And the angel says, well, Zechariah, because you didn't believe, you're going to be silent. You will not be able to speak until your son is born. We are then told that he goes back home, and that's when Elizabeth conceives. I believe it's worth pointing out for um, my brothers who are listening. It's when the guy stops talking that the woman gets pregnant. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what, what to call that. I would call it advice, an insight, but it's all free. So anyway, so uh, Zechariah turns home and they conceive. And this is where now we return to the prayer of Elizabeth. Uh, she, she remains for some reason in seclusion for a few months. And she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And it's the very last bit 
that I want to reflect on by way of concluding this, this Christmas episode. She says, God has taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, the word disgrace, this is actually the only place in the, uh, the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, where this word is used. It speaks of shame. Now, we can read right past this and think that this is something that Elizabeth bore, that this shame, this disgrace was something that was laid on her, the shame of being unable to conceive, the shame of being someone who cannot obey the sacred command regarding life. We can read this and think she experienced or internalized this disgrace and the shame. But it's actually not what this is saying, like not even close. The shame, the disgrace of what she speaks is not hers. Rather, it is, quote, in the people, which would be a more literal uh, phrasing of it. Uh, the, the way that this is phrased points toward the fact that Elizabeth was a woman who did not hold the shame and the disgrace that others held in regard to her. We might say it this way. Elizabeth had a proper view of herself because she saw things differently than others, than those who had shame inside them. That the shame was theirs, it was not hers. And I think there's something profound and something powerful about this idea that Elizabeth, in the midst of a world and culture that would have consistently wondered and asked questions about her and about Zechariah and about their inability to conceive and what's really going on with the priestly family, in the midst of all of that, something in her knows not just who she is, but more importantly, as Richard Rohr points out, she knows whose she is. She is a daughter of the Almighty. She has the breath of the divine in her lungs. Her identity, her understanding of herself is not informed by wrong-headed religious opinions that say things like, if you can't obey God's commands, then the question lies with you. She is not swayed by the thoughts of others who whisper and wonder about what she and her husband may or may not have done, what they may or may not be hiding. All that shame, all that disgrace, that is in the people, but it is not in Elizabeth. What these words teach us is that there is something in her that knows deep, deep within that she is a beloved daughter of the God who is love. She is a woman who is rooted in this identity. She knows both who she is and whose she is. She celebrates because she says, God has done this for me. God has done this for me. And in doing so, he's removed my disgrace from all those people out there. And my hope for us is that this is an invitation to see that what she was tapping into is available for all of us. Like consider how many things in our world attempt to tell us who we are and consider how often we allow those things to shape our identity. Like how many of us cling to some sort of recognition we've received as a way of telling ourselves that we have value and worth? Like how many of us replay old tapes about all the things we are not or all the negative things that we believe ourselves to be, the, the messages that plague us, patterns of thinking that move along well-traveled synapses in our brain that whisper to us, telling us something that we are not. 
There are so many forces at work telling us who we are, telling us who we are not. So many forces, by the way, that come from a negative place attempting to keep in our minds all the things that are wrong with us. And likewise, the things that feel positive are the things that we use to tell ourselves that we are in fact worth something. Now I realize like so much of this is subconscious or unconscious, but in my experience, no one is immune to this because all of us were trying to understand who we are and mixed in with that are the messages we received and the longing to be someone worth loving someone who is accepted, someone who's embraced. And so we strive and we work and we want to present our best selves. And at the same time, we struggle mightily with shame, believing the messages that have been imprinted on us, telling ourselves if they, whoever they are, if they knew who I really was, they would want nothing to do with me. By the way, I don't think Elizabeth was immune to this sort of thing. But here in this story, we see that she's moved beyond that sort of thinking and opened herself to the love of God, a love that embraces us just as we are, no questions asked. Years ago, I was, uh, I was studying for a sermon and I was actually preaching about God's love. And I had this moment, uh, it was an experience. That's the best thing I could, the best word I can use for it. It was an experience as I sat at my desk reading. And something came over me in a way I could viscerally feel, the kind of feeling that was beyond feeling. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like something so real that to this day, I cannot find the words or explain it or describe it. But but as I sat at my desk, I was overwhelmed with this experience. And I was overwhelmed in that moment with the understanding that I was loved. And I was overcome, not just by the the deep truth that I was and am and always have been loved. I was overcome by the truth that I am worth loving. I am loved and I am worth loving. It was a sense of like, I, I have nothing to prove. I have no one to impress There's nothing to sort out. There's nothing to repair or to fix or for me to get right. Like in that moment at my desk, this experience, it declared (laughs) you are loved and you are worth loving now and you always have been. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I, I mean, I sobbed like super gross, ugly, snotting cry, sobbing. It was like my soul was purging all kinds of lies and shame that I had held on to for so long. I, I, I'm, I cried on and off for like three or four days after this experience as it continued to sink more deeply into my bones. Now, of course, I'd love to tell you that I've held on to that truth deeply every day since, and it's you know continuing to overwhelm me every second of my life. And if I did tell you that, I'd be lying. What I can tell you is that the truth of my being a beloved son is something that I revisit, or maybe I should say it visits me uh, more and more frequently the longer I live. And each time it does, it settles a little bit deeper within me. And it's like this lifelong waking up that just a little bit more each day, I'm recognizing who and whose I am. And maybe that's what this prayer, these words of Elizabeth can teach you 
is who and whose you are. Maybe these words can remind you that you are already loved and you are worth loving. Let me say that again, because not, it doesn't only bear repeating, but because I hope these words wash over you and settle deep within you. You are already loved exactly as you are. You are already loved, not in spite of your biggest failures, not in spite of your secrets, not in spite of the thing you hate most about yourself. No, you are already loved, all of you. There is a God who embraces you as you are right now, warts and all. You are already loved and you are worth loving. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to do. You have nothing to fix. You have nothing to accomplish. You, as you are in this moment, you are worth loving right now. And I think something tells me this is what Elizabeth knew. This is why the shame wasn't in her. The shame was out there among and in and with the people. And my hope as we think about this Christmas prayer is that this is what we will come to know, that we will come to the place where we can forsake shame no matter what others think about us, no matter what rumors are swirling, and and that we would come to know deep within the shame and the disgrace is not something we have to hold even when and if it is held by others. My hope is that this simple two-sentence prayer would have the power to free us into understanding and knowing who and whose we are, that we are beloved children of the Almighty God who is love. My hope is that we may pray with gratitude the prayer of Elizabeth, the Lord, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, God has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. May we, as we move closer to Christmas Day, hold these words. And in our holding them, may they lead us to the place where we know with God there is no shame, there is no disgrace. There is only and has only ever been love. And with that, we conclude today's episode. And we conclude our time together in 2020. And my friends, my prayer is that you would have a blessed Christmas, that in the midst of this surreal time that you would find joy and happiness in a hope-filled new year. We will be back together sometime in January, and I look forward to that day. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.